Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. How might the end of Roe v. Wade impact the midterm elections? Well, we've got a brand new CNN poll. The lead starts right now. Internet search history, social media posts, location data, how women and girls' digital information could be used to target them for prosecution if Roe v. Wade is overturned and abortion becomes a crime. Then, the Kremlin leaving its mark literally on the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol, putting up Russian road signs, erecting statues of Soviet leaders. Plus, some good news on the American jobs front. More than 90% of the 22 million jobs lost during the height of the pandemic are back. But is that good news enough to offset the spiking inflation rate? This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news in our politics lead. We have a brand new CNN poll in the wake of that draft opinion leaking, that opinion that revealed the Supreme Court appears on the verge of striking down the landmark abortion decision, Roe v. Wade. The 1973 decision has guaranteed constitutional protections for girls and women in the U.S. seeking an abortion for almost half a century. Keep in mind, the abortion opinion leaked to Politico is not final. It was only in draft form. Yet, of course, the news ignited rallies for and against abortion rights nationwide. And now, tall fencing surrounds the entire perimeter of the U.S. Supreme Court in anticipation of protests to come. One thing we know is to come are the midterm elections this November. Will this drastic change in medical, legal, and political realities, if it happens, will it have any impact on who runs this country? Let's get right to CNN political director David Chalian. So, David, to start with, where do... Most Americans stand on what the Supreme Court seems to be poised to do here, overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah, Jake, this poll conducted by SSRS was taken entirely after that draft opinion was made public by Politico. And we found opinion hasn't moved that much. It's still a two to one uh, electorate here in favor of keeping Roe as law of the land. Sixty six percent say no, they don't support the Supreme Court overturning Roe. Thirty four percent say they do. Look at that broken down by party. Of Of course, 88% of Democrats say no, they don't want to see Roe overturned. 71% of independents are in that place. And even nearly 4 in 10, 37% of Republicans don't want to see Roe overturned, which the Supreme Court appears poised uh, to do here. Not a huge gender split either. 69% of women in this poll do not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. 62% of men are in the same boat. They don't want to see Roe v. Wade overturned, Jake. So the Senate, Democrats are talking about trying to pass a national law to counter any Supreme Court decision. Uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pushing for a vote as early as next week. Whether or not he can get that passed is another matter. But would that theoretically have popular support? Yeah, this is where the Senate math and the nation's uh, approach to this do not match up. Uh, 59% of Americans in this poll Uh, They support a law that would basically codify Roe, that would establish a nationwide right to abortion. 41% of Americans oppose that. We also asked, well, if it is overturned, what would you want to see happen in your state? 20% say they want to see 
a complete and total abortion ban in their state if Roe is overturned. Only 20%. Compare that to down here, Jake. 51%, a slim majority of Americans in this poll, would like to see their state be a safe haven for abortion in a post-Roe world. Hmm. Well, Republicans hold the minority position on this, and yet they appear poised to do well in the midterms. Would this impact their victories at all? You know, this is so interesting. And obviously, this is a first reaction in the immediate aftermath uh, that we're going to see the actual opinion come down, mobilized campaigns around this. But the first reaction, we asked people to get their feelings about what would happen if indeed the court overturns Roe. 17 percent, just 17 percent say they'd be happy. Okay, compare that to the 36 percent who say they would be angry. Obviously, the group angry is the larger group, Jake. But look at this. I think this is one of the most interesting findings in the whole poll. Among those folks who say they're happy, 38% of them are extremely enthusiastic about voting in the midterms. Extremely enthusiastic. The larger group, the angry folks, only 20% of them are extremely enthusiastic about voting in the election. So Democrats are going to lean into this, but it's clear here uh, that it is not just a clear advantage for Democrats on this issue right now in terms of enthusiasm for November. And, and how much might abortion be a single issue motivator for Americans right now? So many Americans are focused on the economy. Yeah, basically about a quarter of uh, voters in this poll, Jake, 26 percent say a candidate must share their views on this issue in order to get their vote. Fifty six percent say it's just one of several factors. Only 18 percent say it's not a major issue at all, Jake. Interesting. David Chalian, thanks so much. Thanks. Uh, I want to bring in Katie Watson. She's an attorney and associate professor of medical education at Northwestern University School of Medicine. Also here with us is Cynthia Conti-Cook. She's a civil rights lawyer and technology fellow on gender, racial, and ethnic justice at the Ford Foundation. Because I want to talk about what this all means uh, if this happens. So, Katie, a a bill advancing through Louisiana's legislature right now would classify abortions as homicides. Uh, On the other hand, you have states such as Connecticut, where the governor signed a law protecting abortion seekers and providers from any out-of-state lawsuits. Are all these cases going to end up right back at the U.S. Supreme Court? They may. Um, We were going to be in a system, a patchwork of free states and forced motherhood states. And we are going to see women traveling. And so these cross-border issues of jurisdiction are going to become incredibly important and chaotic Um, So the Supreme Court deciding, we all understand that if gambling is illegal in your state and you fly to Las Vegas and gamble for the weekend, then return, your state doesn't have jurisdiction. It's not going to bother you for that. And it's not going to sue the casino. But in the abortion world, things are so vicious and so toxic that states are going to try untested legal theories to pursue and to create a chilling effect for anyone who's trying to live freely. And Cynthia, you know, if, if abortion is declared a homicide, obviously, then there will be prosecution of women who try or succeed in getting an abortion or providers. There are privacy advocates today raising the alarm about how evidence might be collected. Say a woman carries her phone with her into a clinic or, or a text message or an email is shared. Can a woman or a girl's digital footprint be used in court to prosecute her for an abortion were it to be declared a homicide? Well, yes, Jake, we actually know already that prosecutors have presented digital evidence from people's devices, including Google search histories, text messages, emails, 
websites that they've visited. They've introduced this, presented it into criminal courts in Mississippi and in Indiana and more since 2015. So theoretically, this, this would be done nationwide, I suppose, uh, or depending on the state. It's not theoretical at all. If law enforcement has a hammer, as it is commonly said, everything is a nail. We know that the digital device extraction tools that police departments, large and small, have access to across the country have an incredible amount of power to get into your phone. And police officers don't have to scroll through months of text messages to look for the word abortion. They can just keyword search it and find it anywhere that it is embedded in your digital history that is extracted into these devices so this is from not these o- devices. This is not only coming, it's already here. It's already being done. Katie, as Louisiana's proposed abortion legislation also calls for this, quote, that, that the state fully recognize the human personhood of an unborn child at all stages of development prior to birth from the moment of fertilization. Now, Professor, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's saying when an egg is fertilized, not implanted. So that mm-hmm. legislation would criminalize the birth control pill or IUDs and, and make using birth control pills theoretically a homicide? So the good news is birth control pills and IUDs do not interfere with a fertilized egg. There's one IUD, the copper IUD, that might Um, but the others don't. They use hormones to suppress ovulation. Now, that doesn't mean there's not lots of confusion about that and abuse of the concept of, because people don't understand when does an egg fertilize and how does each contraceptive work. It comes into play in IVF clinics um, where you have a fertilized egg in the first few days of development. Louisiana has already banned discarding frozen blastocysts. They go by French law. They, they, their origin is in French law, a little fun fact, instead of English law. And they're designated as juridical persons. So they're kind of frozen for eternity. Hmm. Cynthia, back to the privacy concerns in a, in a, in a po, post-row environment. Are there calls to regulate how far prosecutors or police can go to, to prove a woman had an abortion or to find the provider or find a family member who might have helped her? Are there any protections at all or no? No, there aren't. The only type of protection against the use of digital extraction devices that I know of is in Michigan, where a warrant is required. People are not able to voluntarily consent because the amount of information is not what you might think if you hand your phone over. If we hand our phone overs to our friends uh, and ask them to look for something in our phone, it's obviously going to be difficult to easily find. But if we're handing our phones over to police or to social workers or caseworkers or any of the many state agencies that have digital extraction devices, it's possible for them to do very thorough searches. And so the type of information that is available is much broader than people might think of if they're asked to voluntarily hand it over. Other than the law in Michigan, which requires a warrant, there's not any limitation on what police can do with the information taken from your phone. And there was even a case in Wisconsin recently where a man's information from one investigation was allowed to be used in a case months later for a crime being investigated by a different sheriff's department in a different county. 
Uh, and, and Katie Watson, I mean, I, I, I know I can already sense that there are going to be people saying that this is a fear-mongering segment. This is just what the natural extension of these laws would do. Absolutely. Some states are, of course, Texas and now Oklahoma, um, using the citizen enforcement. And it's important to note that citizens aren't limited by the Fourth Amendment's limitations on search and seizure. So getting aggregate data of, of folks who visit clinics is something that private companies can sell. It's also the case that we saw last month a Texas woman who was prosecuted for self-induced abortion, and then the charges were later dropped, but it was a healthcare worker who called the police when she came seeking help for, for um, complications. And so we will see lots of self-induced abortion. Um, this generation is going to learn to love talking on the phone instead of uh, texting um, to, to um, reduce their chances of being tracked. They're going to go to the library to Google medication abortion. They're going to find Plan C website. They're going to find aid access where doctors in Europe will talk to them and guide them through and send them the medication. They're going to order the pills in advance, which they can do from aid access just in case they need them. They're going to learn to call if, when, how for legal advice, but they're going to be afraid that if they do have a complication, which is rare, but it happens, and they're losing too much blood, they go to the emergency room and they will be reported, will be the fear. Physicians breaching their ethical obligation of confidentiality, we've already seen that too. Katie Watson and Cynthia Conti-Cook, thank you both. Really appreciate your time today. New satellite images show Russian forces are doing some kind of excavation at the site of that Mariupol theater that they bombed. The question is, why? What are they doing? Then, a massive explosion rocks a popular hotel in Cuba. We're live on the scene. Stay with us. In our worldly, what appears to be yet another breach of a ceasefire by Russia during efforts to evacuate civilians from the Mariupol steel plant. Ukrainian forces on the ground there claim Russian forces fired an anti-tank weapon at a car that was trying to help with the evacuations, killing at least one Ukrainian soldier, injuring six more. Despite this, Ukrainian officials announced at least 50 civilians were successfully evacuated today, including some children. President Zelensky says Russia has blocked all international aid organizations from providing food, water, and other needed supplies to the civilians trapped in Mariupol. Zelensky accused Russia of using this blockade as a form of torture by starvation. Also in Mariupol, new satellite images obtained by CNN show Russian forces are excavating that theater that they bombed in mid-March. You might remember it was struck by the Russians, even though it was being used as a shelter for women, children, and the elderly. The word children was even written outside the theater on the ground in Russia, in Russian, in large letters, twice. The Associated Press estimates that 600 Ukrainian civilians were killed in that strike. What are the Russians doing there in this excavation? Are they accommodating the burials of Ukrainian civilians that they killed? Are they covering up evidence of their possible war crimes? We do not know. We do know Russian forces are now trying to put their stamp on what is left of Mariupol, from erecting a statue of a woman holding a Soviet flag to changing the road signs from being in Ukrainian to being in Russian. Sinan's Nick Payton Walsh reports now from eastern Ukraine on the major changes happening in some of these areas now under Russian control. Escorted by armor, curtains closed 
Inside are said to be some of the latest civilians to evacuate the unbridled hell of Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol. Yet these are Russian troops escorting them out, not the United Nations who helped evacuate earlier in the week. Ukrainian soldiers here Friday said one of theirs died and six were injured in an evacuation bid. And while Ukraine said it began a new operation to get people out from under this, the savagery of Russian bombardment at the factory, the UN said Friday a total of 500 people had got out since their efforts began this weekend. Many, many more desperate to flee. Battered and uninhabitable as much of Mariupol is, still ahead of Monday's Victory Day, it appears the city's drama theatre Its basement, packed with children when it was bombed by Russia, killing hundreds, is now being cleared up, excavated. These satellite images, first on CNN, showing rubble visible in April, gone in recent days. Vehicles lined up and the ground around the theatre cleared to make it more presentable. It's not clear why they are tidying the scene of what many called a war crime. The warped world of what Russia calls liberation was also on view here, in these rare images filmed inside a filtration camp where Ukrainians are held before being forced to go to Russia. Passports taken, sleeping on the floor or in chairs, illness from the cold, all part of the experience of liberation, according to one woman whose father was there. And this stage visit, evidence of Russia's rush to assimilate what it's clumsily torn off Ukraine. This is Kherson, the first city it captured, and the man in the beard is Denis Pushilin, separatist leader from Donetsk, in a visit suggesting Kherson, under Russian occupation where protests are crushed, will also be declared a tin-pot people's republic soon. It all has the whiff of empire. Here, he sits discussing transferring food from Kherson to Russia's separatist areas, watermelons and tomatoes. He might call it trade, Ukraine a food heist. But Moscow is far from having its way and the costs are heavy. These images CNN has confirmed were filmed in a graveyard in Ryazan. The flags are for the Russian paratroop division, the elite, and there are many just in this one city. These are the dead behind the propaganda, with so much rubble in Russia's tiny victories. Now, back to that evacuation of the Azovstal plant. It initially seemed to be 25, now it's grown to 50. Uh, They do appear to initially be in Russian custody. We'll see if the UN and the Red Cross pick up and begin to increase the volume. One important thing we learned today from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky speaking to the uh, parliament in Iceland, he said that 500,000 Ukrainians have in fact been taken to Russia, essentially forcibly resettled across the east border, uh, frankly, all part of this devastating toll, this unprovoked invasion has taken on uh, Ukraine. Jake. Nick Payton Walsh in eastern Ukraine. Thank you so much. And joining me now to discuss is Emenea Zaparova. She's the first deputy foreign minister of Ukraine. Uh, deputy foreign minister, thank you so, so much for joining us. What can you tell us about the evacuations at the Azovstal plant today and the fighting happening there right now? Greetings from Kiev. Indeed, we are uh, doing our best to evacuate our people from Mariupol and Azovstal, namely. 
we uh, have managed to bring some of our people uh, by those agreed corridors, but they are sometimes failed to be performed as happened today when one of the cars evacuated had been shelled uh, by artillery. And uh, still the question is that whether those corridors, even those who could, that were agreed on could be reliable out of 300 95 corridors we managed to agree upon 340 something and only 180 something performed to be uh, available for people so what we can see is that those agreements let's say agreements on corridors uh, they often fail uh, to be performed and unfortunately people suffer so with regards to Azovstal um, or those who are sieged I would say or besieged in 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 the plant they are uh, trying to call every single door and to knock every single door by requesting leaders and presidents to put pressure on President Putin and, and Putin and Russian army so that this evacuation could happen. And just to be clear... And of what, course, it's horrible just to... Just, and of course, it's it's horrible to, to, to observe what has been happening there when, for example, I, I was listening to a friend, um, one of the Crimean Tata uh, doctors who is in Azovstal when he said that he doesn't manage to cure people because he just simply doesn't have basic things and he is so overwhelmed by seeing how people die because of very basic things just because he, he cannot rescue them, you know, because of absence of any medicine right. and uh, pills that are needed. Just to be clear, what you're saying when you say the corridors uh, are failing, you're saying that the Russians are saying, go ahead, you can clear through here, you can go through here, you, you won't be touched. And then they go back on their word and, and shoot or shell those those civilians being evacuated, right? That's that's what you mean? Absolutely. That's been done deliberately to cause uh, panic and chaos. And I think that the very uh, way how Russia acts is, is, is quite simple to understand. Because first, they attacked my country. Their initial plan failed to be performed and they did not accomplish their initial goals to take control over the whole country in three days. Then they regrouped and focused their attention in, in terms of the military actions on the east and on the south. Now Mariupol is psychologically quite important for them, so they want to crush. I mean, they have already turned the city into dust, but what they want is to to break the spirit of people still resisting in Azovstal. Yeah. So what they also do, they surrounded the city of Mariupol. They caused this humanitarian crisis when 400,000 population city is actually ruined. And what they say, I, I believe it's also important to understand, they say, oh, Ukrainian army, they are, uh, they are committing propaganda, saying to people that Ukrainian army is been shelling the city, and then they open up their territory, the Russian territory for evacuation, but Indeed, and in fact, it's called forcible deportation when they bring thousands of uh, Ukrainians via Russian territory, yeah. thus depicting themselves as, as saviors or bringing humanitarian assistance because of this connection by, by land, saying that, look, we're helping you and Ukraine does nothing. So they also try to brainwash people in Mariupol and it's yet another truth. Yeah. So you're the first deputy foreign minister of Ukraine. The White House announced today that President Biden and leaders of the G7 countries will meet virtually with President Zelensky on Sunday. The G7, uh, for our viewers, is Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States. The U.S. is obviously doing quite a bit uh, to help um, Ukraine. What other G7 countries need to step up and do more to help Ukraine? 
we are quite we're quite vocal on what more should be done. Position number one is that sanction pressure should be performed in a due way because as soon as and while Russia has been hitting, shelling and bombing our cities and our people, sanctions should not be stopped. So we are waiting for the sixth package of sanction that is under consideration of European Union. And this is the whole bunch of those sanctions. We also think that by having a Russian intention to blockade our seas, I mean, Black Sea and the Sea of Azov, while we cannot export our goods and stuff wheat, grain, sunflower oil via sea, as we usually did, because 70% of our ter- uh, export was exported by sea. When If they block, uh, and while they block, uh, we believe that those uh, opportunities for Russian vessels uh, should be closed to enter any port of any civilized countries. We also believe that the SWIFT uh, banking system and the uh, cut of the SWIFT should be performed in extended way because only like six or seven banks are there. So it's still this pressure should be kept on performed. Then deputinization, it's isolation of those countries. And the most important is that we understand that the blood of their budget is oil and gas. So full embargo for oil, gas, minerals and coal and ferro uh, things uh, should be should be performed. And this will weaken Russian economy, which obviously will influence their capabilities. We really indeed appreciate uh, the assistance that we have already received from United States. These are weapons, munitions, humanitarian assistance, those money that has already been allocated for my country. But uh, just recently, President Biden last week submitted a request Request for U.S. Congress for funding a uh, 33 billion of U.S. dollars aid package for my country. While we have over 20 from uh, weapons, uh, 8.5 billion of U.S. dollars for ammunition and other military assistance, according to this plan, will go to humanitarian assistance. So of course, our huge request, something that comes from people, not only politicians, not only officials, but people, is about. Um, adoption this plan because uh, as my minister says we need weapon 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 and weapon just to protect ourselves because yeah. i think that if this war is not contained in ukraine the evil will become bigger it's something that happened in 2014 and in our inability to give a proper response for the crimean occupation the occupation of donbass led us to this war so the next question if we are not able to do so here in ukraine this war and aggression of putin will become bigger Emine Zaporova, the first deputy foreign minister of Ukraine, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Coming up, meet some of the Americans who have volunteered to go to Ukraine and fight the Russians themselves. That's next. Some positive news in our money lead. April's jobs report is showing the U.S. is moving closer to a complete economic recovery from the pandemic. Last month, the country added 428,000 jobs. That's the same as in March, while the unemployment rate held steady at 3.6%, just above the pre-COVID era level of 3.5%. This is the 12th straight month that more than 400,000 jobs have been added. The U.S. still needs to gain just over 1 million jobs to reclaim all of the nearly 22 million jobs lost at the beginning of the pandemic, but we're closer than ever. Moments ago, President Biden touted the jobs increase in a speech in Ohio. Today's job report shows our plans and priorities have produced the strongest job creation in the modern times of the American economy. Today's report shows we created 428,000 jobs last month. And that means we have now created a total of 8.3 million jobs. 
in my first 15 months in office. Let's discuss with CNN business anchor Richard Quest and Rana Faruhar, global business columnist for the Financial Times and a CNN global economic analyst. Richard, I'll start with you. President Biden taking full credit for these numbers, saying his policies are responsible for the economic recovery. Is he right? He is partially, yes. If you put enough money into the economy, this is what you will get. If you have large stimulus packages, uh, this is what you will get. So absolutely, there is credit to be taken, and he's right to take some of it. Uh, Along with everybody else who's done this, like Jay Powell and indeed President Trump before him, with some of the policies that were there. But... I don't want to be a Friday night harbinger of doom, but this strong job number also solidifies the Fed's intention to keep raising rates and to do so hard and fast because it's out of control when it comes to inflation. Rana, the jobs report, undeniably good news for American workers, but the market is showing signs of returning to normal. How do you see it? Well, you know, Jake, it's the classic problem. What is good news on Main Street is often very times bad news on Wall Street. Why is that? Well, you know, you look at this jobs report, you've got broad swaths of the economy doing really well. Manufacturing jobs are up, travel and tourism is up, transport is up, uh, retail is up. So why aren't stock prices up? Because all of that job creation means inflation. It means higher wages. And as Richard pointed out, it probably means that the Fed is going to move quicker and stronger on raising interest rates and markets don't like that. So you get the strange disconnect of good news in the real world turning into bad news in the markets. And Richard, the Dow fell again today. Thursday, it fell by more than 1,000 points. We talked about it then. Why are we seeing these falls even as unemployment remains low and jobs are being added to the economy? Is it, is it just, as Rana said, it's because interest rates are going to keep going up? Yes. Interest rates go up. Companies make less money. Wages have to fall slightly or at least not go up as much. There has to be a weakness in the economy. You know, after our discussion yesterday, Jake, a viewer wrote to me, tweeted me, says, why can't we just keep growing? What's wrong with this? We've grown faster before than these levels. Yes, but we haven't done so at 8% inflation in the last 30 odd years. Mm. And inflation hits every single person. It hits safe the old age pensioners who have saved all their lives. It hits wage earners. It helps that it hits those on benefits. And that's the significance of what the policy of the Fed's doing. The market knows prices of stocks have to fall to get to a level where eventually uh, people start to say they're cheap enough. Let's buy. And Rana, today, President Biden called inflation and higher prices. He acknowledged they were a challenge for families across the country. He's blaming supply chain problems for the rise in prices. He's blaming uh, Putin. He says tackling inflation is a top priority for his administration. Rana, what more needs to be done to bring prices down? Well, you know, in some ways, there's not a lot more he can do because this stuff is baked in. I mean, it's true. There have been supply chain mismatches. There, There is a war that's uh, creating double-digit inflation in, in energy costs and high single digits in food. We all feel it at the grocery store. Uh, you know, as we've been talking about, the Fed has pumped a lot of money into the economy. The administration pumped some money into the economy, too. Um, the Fed's been doing it for longer. That money now has to work itself out of the system. It's a balloon. The economy is a balloon. You can inflate it for a certain amount of time. Eventually, it deflates. Right now, the trick is, is it going to pop or are we going to be able to more gently deflate um, the economy? And that is a big question. All right, Rana Faruhar, Richard Quest, thanks to both of you. Have a great weekend. Vladimir Putin. <laughs> 
is not the only strongman worrying the Pentagon. Coming up next, the latest worries about what North Korea's Kim Jong-un might be up to. Stay with us. Sticking with our world lead as global leaders focus on Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine, another rogue leader is ramping up his own military capabilities. Kim Jong-un's North Korea launched another ballistic missile this week and may be getting ready to test a nuclear bomb. CNN's Owen Lieberman is at the Pentagon for us, where they are obviously keeping a close eye on Kim's latest provocations. Oren, what is North Korea up to and how much does this all have to do with President Biden's upcoming visit to South Korea and Japan? Jake, you're certainly right to tie it potentially to that upcoming visit from President Joe Biden to visit his regional partners. We have often seen North Korea and Kim Jong-un carry out tests, whether it's a nuclear test in the past or a ballistic missile launch tied to, to, uh, to a presidential visit or a high-ranking official visit or a U.S. military exercise in the region. As an example, back in 2016, there was a nuclear uh, test from North Korea that was carried out right after President Barack Obama left Asia for a meeting with world leaders. So this now is what the administration is watching very closely right now. And the U.S. assesses that North Korea may be getting ready for another nuclear test, what would be its seventh. Last month, CNN reported that the U.S. was looking at building site in, or, or building at the site where it carries out its nuclear tests in the northern part of the country, the digging of tunnels, and the U.S. assessed then that it was preparing, if it wanted to, to carry out a quick nuclear test. The U.S. has continued to watch and has seen vehicle and uh, personnel activity at the site, an indication that a nuclear test may be imminent, perhaps by the end of the month. One of the key questions is, have they loaded nuclear uh, uh, material into the tunnel to carry out a test? That question is still unknown. The administration, the Pentagon, of course, watching this very closely. Jake, the last nuclear test from North Korea was back in September 2017. That, North Korea said, was the test of a hydrogen bomb, its most powerful test to date. Sticking on the North Korean issue, Oren, the, the U.S. is sanctioning a financial service used by North Korean-backed hackers? This one is, is kind of interesting. It is the first time, according to the Treasury Undersecretary, that the U.S. has sanctioned a virtual currency mixer. And that is essentially an organization or company that takes virtual currency transactions, mixes, mashes them together, processes them, and makes it harder to trace where those came from. In this case, the company is called, and let me get this right, Blender.io. The administration says that Lazarus Group, a North Korean cyber hacking group, used this company to process a bit of the $620 million that North Korea stole from a, a blockchain organization. So now targeting not only the hackers, but also how they process, move, and try to hide that money. Jake. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. We're now learning more about the cause of a deadly explosion that rocked a hotel in Havana, Cuba. CNN's live on the scene next. Stay with us. Also in our world lead breaking news in Cuba, a huge explosion destroyed an historic hotel in the heart of Havana today. Cuba's government says at least nine people were killed. Our Havana-based correspondent Patrick Ottman is on the scene. Patrick, do they know what caused the blast? Apparently, as this hotel was due to reopen, Jake, as tourists begin to return to uh, Cuba that is finally recovering from the pandemic. Uh, There was a delivery of gas today, uh, kind of gas used uh, for cooking and heating water tanks and that kind of thing. And there was a leak in the hotel. Essentially, the hotel filled up with gas, exploded. While there were no tourists inside, we're told it was full of hotel workers. This is a very busy area of the city. There were people walking by, people waiting for buses, uh, and they were buried under rubble. When I arrived just minutes after the explosion, they were still pulling people out from under that rubble. What we're told now is that rescue workers have to be very, very careful. There are concerns 
this building, this historic hotel that celebrities and U.S. officials have visited over the years, is almost structurally sound. It is still standing, but there is concerns that it could collapse down those rescue workers. So they have to be very, very careful as they go into this building, continue to look under these large blocks of rubble, blocks of rubble that were thrown yards from the hotel, crushed cars and at least one large tourism bus. So we expect that the, this grim work of recovering the dead and looking for survivors will continue late into the night, Jake. What a horrible thing. What, what will happen to this hotel now, Patrick? Tourists, as you know, we're just beginning to return to Cuba after the pandemic uh, disrupted travel for years. It, and so much of the economy that has just been battered here by the pandemic is dependent on tourism. You know, this, of course, uh, does not help. Uh, what officials have said is they, they believe the building will have to be knocked down eventually. But uh, certainly we expect the search and rescue operations to go on for days here. It is just an extensive, very dangerous scene as uh, this building is still standing, but, but only just. Patrick Ottman in Havana, thank you so much for that. Good to see you again. Breaking news in the search for the missing corrections officer and capital murder suspect. Police say they found the getaway car. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead up, Jake Tapper. This hour, breaking news in the Alabama manhunt for that corrections officer and capital murder suspect. Police have found a vehicle used by the fugitives. Plus, more than 100 cases of an unexplained and deadly hepatitis outbreak among young children in the United States. Five kids have died. 15 have needed liver transplants. More on this medical mystery ahead. And leading this hour, new questions being raised about what the Russians are doing at the site of that theater that they bombed in Mariupol. You might remember it was bombed back in March by the Russians with thousands of innocent Ukrainian civilians sheltering inside. Satellite images from the past month showed different stages of excavations going on. Ukrainian forces now say Russian troops, in addition, fired on a car that was trying to help with the evacuations of civilians. At least one Ukrainian soldier was killed, six others injured. And as CNN's Sarah Seidner reports for us now, Ukraine's president is accusing Russia of blocking all international organizations from providing food, water, and other supplies to civilians trapped in Mariupol, doing that as a form of torture by starvation, he says. A Ukrainian soldier in shock silence, his arm shredded and burned, his vehicle hit by a shoulder-fired grenade launcher, officials say, another victim in the bloody battle for Mariupol. The video, a terrible reminder to those who have relatives still fighting there. Olga has a husband in the Ukrainian army in Mariupol. Anna's brother is there as well. It's so painful for me. People can't just be silent about the horrors happening there. They don't have days there. They are counting the minutes. Anna says she fears for her brother, who she says is deteriorating physically as he fights the Russians inside the plant. He's very skinny. He's exhausted. His eyes have black bags, she says. He's in horrible condition, but that's just physically. Mentally, he's unbelievably strong. They are all so motivated to tear the Russians apart. Russia is attacking from the ground and the sky. The devastation, immeasurable. The human suffering, incalculable. Under heavy fire, hundreds of civilians still stuck, cowering in fear under the steel plant. This is the last Ukrainian stronghold in Mariupol. But Russia is squeezing in on it, relentlessly bombing the place, even after a promise of a ceasefire to allow those trapped civilians to escape. 
Once again, the Russians violated the promise of a truce and did not allow the evacuation of civilians who continued to hide from shelling in the basement of the plant. Friday, a third rescue attempt got underway, at least a dozen civilians rescued, adding to the nearly 500 people freed. 21-year-old Nicole was able to escape Mariupol. Pictures of her formerly happy life there now devastate her. This is practically suicide. If I do, my heart shatters. I don't understand why, how at some point. On the other side of the battle, a Russian soldier nonchalantly says talks are useless for a ceasefire. The war, in his mind, has been ongoing for eight years, since the Russians invaded and occupied Crimea. Now, terror washes over another place, and the bombs continue to fall. We have now heard from Ukrainian officials who say actually 50 people uh, have been finally evacuated from that cavernous area underneath the steel plant. But there are hundreds more still waiting for the time when they can come into the light. It is incredibly dangerous there still. Lots of people in a lot of pain wondering what their future is. Jake? Sarah Seidner reporting live for us from Kyiv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. CNN has learned the U.S. provided intelligence that helped the Ukrainians sink the flagship of Russia's Black Sea fleet, the Moskva. You might recall the Moskva is the ship that Ukrainians on Snake Island told to go F itself at the beginning of the war. The Moskva was struck by Ukrainian Neptune anti-ship missiles on April 14th and soon sunk. Today, Pentagon spokesman John Kirby said the U.S. did not provide specific targeting information. Let's get right to CNN's Katie Bo Lillis, who broke the story. Katie Bo, is this just a matter of semantics here? It's certainly a technical distinction that the Biden administration is, is trying to draw here. Here's what we know. We know that the Ukrainians spotted the Moskva operating off of their coast. They called their American counterparts to ask for confirmation. The Americans were able to say, yes, that is in fact the Moskva, and provide some details about the ship's location. And of course, the Ukrainians then go on to, to fire two cruise missiles that sink the ship. Now, U.S. officials are not disputing that sequence of events. Where they're drawing the line here um, is officials are telling us that the kind of intelligence that they provided the Ukrainians wasn't real-time, geolocated, kind of 10-point grid intelligence of the kind that the U.S. itself might have used in, say, Iraq, Afghanistan, or elsewhere that would have allowed the Ukrainians to immediately take a shot, right? So U.S. officials are saying that they were not involved in the decision to strike the Muscova. And in fact, they didn't even know whether or not Ukraine was intending to take the shot once they had the positive identification in their hands. But as you say, uh, Jake, is that a bit of a distinction without a difference when at the end of the day, the result is U.S. intelligence assisting with the sinking of the Muscova? Yeah. And, and I mean, what did they think they were going to do with the information? Send emails to the Moskva? I mean, right. I mean, that's that's exactly so. And, and U.S. officials have been frank. I mean, they have said, like, we are providing intelligence to the Ukrainians that would allow them to conduct offensive strikes and to allow them to conduct strikes that would be in defense of their of their homeland from the from this Russian invasion. But it's, it's worth listening to what um, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby had to say today and how he defines those limitations. All right. Katie Bill, thanks so much. Uh, the intelligence that we provide. Uh, to Ukraine is legal, it's lawful, it's legitimate, and it's limited. We give them information, other partners give them information, and oh, by the way, they have terrific intelligence of their own. They corroborate all that together, and then they make the decisions they're going to make, and they take the actions they're going to take. 
It's an effort to draw a, a red line around the kind of support they're providing to the Ukrainians. And it's an effort to say, look, you know, we're not directly participating in this conflict, but as you ask, is it rhetorical? Is it a distinction without a difference? Yeah. I mean, they weren't sending them something from Uber Eats. Right. Katie Bolillas, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Here now, Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy of Illinois. He's a member of the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, let's, let's start with Pentagon spokesman uh, John Kirby's comments. The U.S. appears to be sensitive uh, about this issue, about being seen as playing a direct role in either the sinking of the Moskva or in the killing of Russian generals, as the New York Times reported earlier this week. But isn't it fair to say the U.S. intelligence has contributed to Russian deaths? I think that it's definitely contributed to the Ukrainians being able to defend themselves and then combined with their other intelligence capabilities and gathering other uh, insights, um, I think that they then conduct their own um, strikes. But I I think it's really important to say uh, very clearly that, um, you know, the the U.S. is going to help them to defend themselves. And then what they do with that information from there is really up to them. Kirby said that the U.S. shared information about the location of the Moskva without knowing Ukraine's intent I mean, do you, do you buy that? We, we all know what the intent was. I, I'm not saying I have an issue with it, but I mean, there seems to be kind of like a little dance going on here that I don't really fully understand. We're giving them arms, we're giving them money, we're giving them intelligence. Of course we're helping them kill Russian soldiers. Well, I think that uh, uh, it's a little different than, for instance, what happened in Iraq or Afghanistan, where we clearly provided a lot more information to our partners um, to target and to help them to actually uh, destroy uh, certain facilities or um, pieces of equipment and and so forth. Here, it's more, uh, as Mr. Kirby said, providing intelligence so that you know where the next missile is coming from if it does. Um, As you know, the Moscow was very involved in shelling uh, the Ukrainians repeatedly. And so being able to tell them uh, where it's located uh, so that they can prepare themselves for the next shelling and attack is really important. Again, I'm not taking issue with what the U.S. is doing. I'm just wondering why there's almost this pretense. What, where is the line where the U.S. crosses it and it is, you would be considering this to be a proxy war with Russia? I mean, we're giving them arms, we're giving them billions, we're giving them money, we're giving them intelligence. If that's not a proxy war with Russia, what is? Well, I think that the, the line is, uh, let me take it a, a different way. In Afghanistan, the Russians were involved with potentially paying bounties to uh, Afghan warlords and others to kill Americans, uh, to go on the hunt for Americans wherever they were. Here, we are actually giving assistance to the Ukrainians to be able to defend themselves from oncoming attacks. Now, in defending themselves, do they end up killing Russians? That's very possible. And that's just um, the way it's going to be so long as they are able to defend themselves successfully. Is, there, is the fear here that Russia would directly retaliate against the United States? Is, is, is that why these lines are being drawn and, and this language is being used? I think that all along we've made it very clear that we are going to provide whatever material assistance necessary to defend the Ukrainians, not to go on the offense, for instance, in Russia, um, or um, to uh, locate strategic assets and so forth. Um, I think that's, a, that's an important distinction that we're trying to maintain. 
President Biden just announced another $150 million worth of equipment for Ukraine, in addition to asking Congress for another $33 billion. Senate Democrats are considering tying that to COVID relief funding. Uh, Republicans say uh, if that's true, they would want some sort of line uh, to ensure that Title 42 is kept. Uh, that's the, the Trump-era policy that allows them to invoke the coronavirus pandemic to more, more quickly uh, eject uh, migrants from the country. Um, would you be okay with that if this is all one big package? Well, I think that we absolutely have to combat uh, COVID, not only here in the United States, where we're starting to run out of funds to buy treatments and vaccines, um, but also uh, across the world, if we're ever going to end this pandemic, and I'm helping to lead the fight there, I think that's a totally separate issue from the border, Jake. And I think that we should take those issues separately. Um, I would not want to see it related to border issues. I think that the package should involve Ukraine and, of course, the COVID aid so that we can actually get out of this pandemic. Well, Title 42 is about COVID. It's a, it's a it's an HHS regu- regulation, I believe, Health and Human Services, saying because of the COVID pandemic, uh, the authorities at the border can uh, eject migrants more quickly and not let them stay and declare asylum. It's directly related to COVID. If Republicans wanted to attach that, I understand you don't like it, but if Republicans wanted to attach it, I mean, it is germane to, to, to COVID. I, I think the issue there is um, it's germane, but it's not directly related to fighting COVID, uh, which is what we absolutely have to do right now. And right now we're seeing a surge in cases And if we're going to uh, sit here and talk about the border instead of dealing with those cases, we could see another resurgence of COVID by the fall. I want to ask you about abortion, uh, given the news this week about it. President Biden is calling on Congress to pass laws that would codify Roe versus Wade nationwide uh, before the Supreme Court presumably uh, undermines it. Uh, Democrats don't have the, the votes to do that. I mean, in the Senate, they do in the House. Um, so what can Congress actually do? I think the main point here is we got to get people on the record if we're going to hold them accountable in the fall and beyond. At this point, um, obviously, we need to defeat the filibuster, in my opinion, uh, to move forward with uh, uh, approval of the uh, uh, Women's Health Protection Act, the WHPA, which is being filibustered in the Senate. But if we can't get that, Jake, we got to get on the record everybody's position very clearly on this so we can hold them accountable at the polls in November. Congressman Raja Krishnamoorthy, Democrat of Illinois, thanks so much. Good to see you again. Europe is getting ready to sanction more prominent Russians, and Vladimir Putin's reputed girlfriend is on the list. We're going to find out more about her in a sec. Then, after the leak of the Supreme Court draft opinion on abortion, the Republican governor of Texas is now considering taking aim at another Supreme Court precedent. Stay with us. Continuing with our world lead, the European Union is getting ready to hit Russia with new economic sanctions because of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. CNN's Jim Bitterman has a closer look now at some of the names on the list, which includes the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, as well as Putin's reputed girlfriend. Putin's punishment for the war hitting his most inner circle. The EU's prime target, Alina Kabaeva, who's said to be Putin's girlfriend and believed to have been given control 
over much of Putin's wealth and property. The two have been rumored to be in a romantic relationship ever since Putin appeared to take an unusual interest in Kabaeva, 30 years his junior, after she won a gold Olympic medal for Russia in rhythmic gymnastics in 2004. A few years later, rumors began to circulate that Putin was separating from his wife, rumors the Kremlin vehemently denied, but which were confirmed in 2014 when the couple officially divorced after 30 years of marriage. Meanwhile, Kabaeva rose steadily in Russian political circles, becoming a deputy in parliament from Putin's party in a post she held for six years before moving on to control a pro-Putin media group. For some time now, there have been calls from supporters of Ukraine to sanction Kabaeva, but Washington was reported to be reluctant to go after someone so close to the Russian president for fear of taking another step toward escalating the conflict. Late last month, though, the White House appeared to signal a change in approach. No one is safe uh, from our sanctions. We've already, of course, sanctioned President Putin, but also his daughter, his closest cronies, uh, and we'll continue to uh, review more. And among the more, another close confidant of Putin, the patriarch Kirill, the primate of the Russian Orthodox Church, who is said to have wealth far beyond the average church leader. He has strongly supported what he called in a sermon Putin's special peacekeeping operation, which he added was a religious cleansing operation to liberate Russian speakers in Ukraine. He's so close to Putin that in a highly unusual comment from the Vatican, Pope Francis said of Kirill, the patriarch cannot become Putin's altar boy, something that threatened to put the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches further at odds. And Jake, there are a number of other targets in the EU sanctions, including a promise to wean European nations off of Russian gas and oil by the end of this year. However, there are already some among the 27 European nations who are demanding an exception to that because they are heavily dependent on Russian energy. Jake? All right, Jim. Thanks so much. Good to see you again. Growing alarm about a mysterious and deadly hepatitis outbreak affecting young kids in the U.S. Why some children are going from the doctor's office to the ICU in just a matter of hours. Stay with us. Troubling story in our health lead, the CDC is sounding the alarm about a growing number of cases nationwide of an unusual disease in young kids. It's not COVID. Public health officials are investigating mysterious cases of acute hepatitis among children ranging from younger than two to older than five. The cause of this outbreak is unclear. The CDC says more than 100 cases are currently under investigation in 25 states. Nearly all of the children, 94 percent, needed to be hospitalized. Fifteenth needed liver transplants. Five have died. CNN health reporter Jacqueline Howard joins us now live with more on this. And Jacqueline, the CDC just held a briefing about this uh, a short while ago. What are we learning from the briefing and what do we know about the symptoms these kids are experiencing? Well, the takeaway here, Jake, CDC officials are looking for answers here behind these acute hepatitis cases. Like you said, these are unusual. They are unexplained. We still don't know the cause. But here's the latest that we were told just today. CDC officials told us that 109 children were identified having these unusual acute cases of hepatitis. The children live in 25 states and territories. That's 24 states plus the territory of Puerto Rico. 
15 of them needed liver transplants. That represents 14% of the total number of kids, and sadly, five of them died. And when you think about the symptoms here, Jake, as you said, more than 90% required hospitalization, which tells us the symptoms were severe. And that really has physicians and CDC officials on high alert. When you think about hepatitis, it is inflammation of the liver and specific signs to look for yellowing of the eyes, dark colored urine, clay colored stool. But some of the children needing liver transplants is what really raises the alarm here. And Jacqueline, CNN spoke with a pediatrician who's treated two of the patients with this unusual condition. What did the doctor say? That's right. The pediatrician was Dr. Haley Bott. She's based in Minneapolis. And she said one of her patients who was two year, who is two year two years old, needed a liver transplant just this week. And what has Dr. Bott concerned, she's worried that if more children uh, are identified in this investigation and more of them need liver transplants, then there will be an increased need of donors. Have a listen. We might have, we might run out of a lot of, you know, deceased donors and might have to start, um, might have to turn towards living related. But I think, I think if this becomes, you know, more severe, if the numbers keep going up and more kids are requiring transplant, I think that would be our biggest challenge. So as we saw there, this is if cases get more severe and if we see more right now, you know, this is still rare and only 14 percent of the children needed liver transplants. But still, this is of concern, Jake. And the first U.S. cases were found in Alabama. Now, all of the kids there tested negative for hepatitis A, B and C, but they all tested positive for Aiden virus. Explain this for us. That's right. Those cases that really put this first on CDC officials' radar. As you mentioned, there was this connection with adenovirus, but when you look at the national numbers that were released just today, CDC officials said about more than half of the children nationwide in that 109 number more than half need, uh, had a past history of adenovirus infection. So yes, that is still part of this investigation, looking at a possible connection with adenovirus. But CDC officials say they are looking at other possible connections, other possible causes. And I thought it was interesting, Jake, one CDC official today said that because this is an evolving situation, keep in mind there might be more than one cause. Some of these cases might have different causes. So we really are just going to stay across this and see what comes out of this investigation at this point. All right. Adenovirus. I stand corrected. Jacqueline Howard, thank you so much for that reporting. Coming up, how the Republican governor of Texas may try to take advantage of the draft Supreme Court opinion that could overturn Roe v. Wade to tackle another legal precedent. Stay with us. The politics lead now as the U.S. Supreme Court appears prepared to erase a nearly 50-year precedent by undermining Roe v. Wade. The Republican governor of Texas wants the Supreme Court to overturn another precedent, the 1982 ruling on Plyler versus Doe. Now, that decision ensured that undocumented children had a right to public education in the United States. Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott now says times have changed since that ruling almost 40 years ago. As CNN's Paula Reed reports, Abbott now argues that the cost to educate thousands of undocumented students is a financial burden on his state. If the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision can be overturned, what about other long-standing precedents? In the state of Texas. Conservatives now see an opening after the leak of a draft Supreme Court decision. Texas Governor Greg Abbott now signaling he may challenge a 1982 ruling that granted undocumented children access to public schools. 
Plyler is a 40-year-old decision uh, that dealt with immigration in the state of Texas uh, that was extremely different then than it is now. Today's Supreme Court decision is historic. Plyler v. Doe was a Supreme Court case that focused on a 1975 Texas law prohibiting the use of state funds for the education of undocumented children and authorizing local school districts to deny those children enrollment. In 1982, the High Court ruled that the law violated the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause and that migrant children should be allowed to enroll in public schools regardless of their citizenship status. In its opinion, the court wrote, Education has a fundamental role in maintaining the fabric of our society and provides the basic tools by which individuals might lead economically productive lives to the benefit of us all. But Abbott, a Republican running for a third term in November, now wants to revisit the issue. When the Plyler decision came out, the immigration that we were seeing into the state of Texas was primarily from Mexico. And the, the only language barrier and issue was Spanish. Now we have people coming from more than 105 different countries across the globe. He says his state should not have to pay to educate migrant children. Listen, we, we are dealing with billions more a year, just in educational ex expenses. The White House already rebuking the idea of Abbott's potential challenge. Well, that's ultra mega denying public education to kids, including uh, immigrants to this country. I mean, that is not the main a mainstream point of view. And this is just one of the rights established by the high court that could be challenged if Roe is overturned. What it reveals is that at least Justice Alito and the justices who are going to sign on to the final version of that opinion are willing to take a clean break from long established precedent of the Supreme Court. And so what that does is then opens up the door, I think potentially for a range of other challenges where this new conservative majority in the Supreme Court will simply say, we're not gonna follow precedent because we think that prior case was wrongly decided. Since the 1982 Plyler decision, little has changed in the legal landscape concerning the education of undocumented children. Attempts to chip away at the decision have been unsuccessful. But one thing that has changed in just the past few years is, of course, the composition of the court. So, Jake, all eyes continue to be on the justices' big decision on abortion rights expected next month. All right, Paula Reed, thank you uh, so much. Let's dive into it. So, uh, Ramesh, what's your take on this? I mean... I am old enough to remember uh, Governor uh, Perry, Rick Perry, and uh, not to mention then Governor uh, Huckabee, uh, talking about the need to be compassionate and educate the children of undocumented immigrants, even if you don't think the undocumented immigrants should be here. The kids did nothing wrong. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think that's the way most people, including a lot of Republicans, still think. I think this has a lot more to do with Governor Abbott's reelection campaign than it has to do with anything the Supreme Court is actually doing or is likely to take up. Um, but the fact is the failure of the federal government to take control of the border creates some fiscal costs for states like Texas. Sure, Abbott can't do a whole lot about that, but what he's doing right now is, is simply essentially a form of venting about that. Yeah. Uh, Hillary, Abbott's suggestion to challenge um, this Supreme Court decision comes after, obviously, that draft memo leaked and Politico got it. Uh, about a Roe versus Wade. A brand new CNN poll we just released uh, on the show shows 66% of Americans do not support undermining or getting rid of, of Roe v. Wade. 34% do, uh, taken in the wake of, of the story this week. 
Um, Supreme Court uh, obviously doesn't necessarily have to listen to polls or Congress or anyone. They can do whatever they want. Does it matter, though? Do you think that the U.S. Supreme Court cares that they are doing something that a majority of the American people don't want them to do? Well, I don't think the court's a monolith. So I think these are individuals who, you know, probably independently do care about their personal reputations. And I think that Judge Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch, who basically said to the Senate and privately to senators that they were not going to vote for this, um, that they thought this was settled law, you know, ought to pay attention to the fact that for the reason that they did that, why they got those votes. Um, Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten those votes. And that's pretty important. So I do think it matters. I think, you know, there's a difference between being punitive and being thoughtful on policy. Abbott feels punitive here. This Roe decision feels punitive. Not going to help Republicans, not going to help the Supreme Court's reputation. Nia Malika, uh, tall fencing has gone up around the U.S. Supreme Court in anticipation of protests and, and, and possibly violence. The White House Press Secretary, Jen Psaki, uh, was asked about activists um, who have gone a step further and published, uh, posted online, uh, little pins of where the six of the Supreme Court justices live um, and was asked about that. Here's part of her answer. We obviously want people's privacy to be respected. We want people to protest peacefully if they want to to protest. That is certainly what the president's view would be. So he doesn't care if they're protesting outside the Supreme Court or outside someone's private residence. I, I don't have an official U.S. government position on where people protest. I want it. We, we want it, of course, to be peaceful. Now, Congressman uh, Lee Zeldin, a Republican who's running for governor of New York, tweeted, does anyone in the Biden administration have the courage and decency to speak out in defense of the physical safety of our nine Supreme Court justices? The doxing and intimidation campaign targeting these justices justices is illegal. And Jen Psaki just used her platform to greenlight it. What do you think? Well, I listen, I don't think she used her platform to greenlight it at all. I think she's in a difficult position because she is representing uh, the American government and the American government uh, can't abridge free speech and protest and where people protest. They do have a right to protest, say, on the sidewalk in front of anyone's house. That's just the way uh, the American government and America uh, has worked for decades. And that's a good thing. And, you know, she was uh, mindful to say she wants it to happen peacefully uh, and that there not be any violence. But she is walking a thin line there because she can't come out and say that the American government's policy is to dictate where people can protest. Let's talk about this faux outrage, though. I mean, this is a the majority of of protests around these issues have really actually been on the other side, on the so-called anti-choice side, pro-life side, where they blocked, you know, Poor women pregnant, you know, sick, trying to get into healthcare clinics, looking for reproductive services, where they wave fetuses around, you know, to, to make people try and feel shame. I mean, this is just crazy that this is now the thing about, oh, let's attack Democrats for not condemning, you, do you know, think, Do you think it's mock outrage? I don't think so at all. I think it's real outrage, and I think it's justified outrage. The norm I mean, has not they been the neighborhoods of where the Supreme Court. That's, that's, that's right. And there's no reason there's no free speech principle that would keep the White House press secretary from saying we would prefer that groups not target individuals homes. The simple thing to do doesn't violate anybody's First Amendment rights to say that just as it doesn't doesn't violate anybody's First Amendment rights for her to say other things about protests. Um, she couldn't do it. And the reason she couldn't do it is because too much of the Democratic base is invested in this kind of extreme tactic. I saw, 
Well, let me just, I want to bring Sung Min on, on yes, something course, that, yeah. that as a journalist she could talk about, which is Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer says the Senate's going to take up a bill next week to codify Roe versus Wade. Um, it clearly doesn't have 60 votes. There aren't 60 people in the Senate, who, uh, senators who support abortion rights. My question is, is does it even have 50 votes? <laughs> oh, I, I don't think so at this point. I mean, we do have at least two Republican senators who support abortion rights in theory, Lisa Murkowski, Murkowski yeah. and Susan Collins, but they don't like this draft of the bill. Senator Susan Collins told reporters on the Hill that she believes this doesn't have enough protections for, for example, for Catholic hospitals who may not want to provide abortions. So she says that language does not go far enough. And, you know, Chuck Schumer was asked, well, why don't you try to work with these uh, two Republicans to come up with a compromise? And and he made it pretty clear that this is a messaging bill. This is a bill that is to show the public that Democrats are the party that would protect abortion rights. And they want to make that message clear to the, to the public. This isn't about legislating. It's not about policymaking. And again, they don't have a majority just amongst themselves. You know, Joe Manchin, obviously, we talk about him a lot on the show. He does not support abortion rights and he would not support this. Bill. Let me play devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't a more effective messaging bill, if that's what Schumer's trying to do, be able to get the votes of Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski like, and, and, and fail, but have 51 you votes? And even think, It's a bipartisan bill. Yeah, you would think, but it's hard to imagine a bill that Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins uh, would get get behind. Um, you know, maybe they could narrowly uh, tailor it. I think Democrats sort of waiting on Susan Collins to vote with them uh, have ended up waiting for a long time. I want to play something yeah, and for you. There's nothing in the Roe v. Wade decision that forces Catholic hospitals to offer abortion services. So, right. But you know, there this, is something this, in the Democrats' bill. This is just a, again, this is just, a, you know, a red herring to find an excuse to have the Republicans stay in their corner and Susan Collins to dance on the fence, which is what she has tried to do on this issue for 25 years. The Democrats' bill has language which, for the first time, you'd have legislation that says the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does not apply to this bill. That is, in fact, going further than Roe v. Wade. That is stripping away conscience rights. And Murkowski and Collins have their own legislation. If the Democrats wanted to do something that could get 51 votes, that's certainly, it's not a mystery what yeah. they would have to do. That's a services issue. That doesn't require well, anybody to pre-offer the service. So I want you to take on uh, a different criticism of the Democratic Party coming from California Governor Gavin Newsom, yeah. uh, who said uh, the Democrats do not have a comprehensive plan to protect uh, this right, uh, the right to an abortion. Take a listen. Where the hell's my party? Where's the Democratic Party? This is a concerted, coordinated effort. And yes, they're winning. They are. They have been. Let's acknowledge that. We need to stand up. Where's the counteroffensive? I mean, does he have yeah, a point? I, I mean, this, in, this case in particular um, has been pending before the court for, you know, a long time. I think the women's groups have been anticipating a loss but I don't know that Democratic leaders have strategized about what they do about a loss. I, I mean, I'm with Governor Newsom, and the key issue here is this is going to end up going to the states, and this is going to fall to governors like Gavin Newsom to protect a woman's right to choose, and we are going to be a divided country where if you live in one state, you have certain rights as, as a human, and if you live in another state, you have, you have fewer rights as a human, and that is that is a horrible place to be, but that is where we're ending up because there is this outcome. So, I, I just wanted to say, like, this made me think, and I don't know if President Biden's going to run for re-election or not, but, like, this is a, seems like this is a good issue. You were talking about right. how Abbott is running for re-election mm-hmm. with his bill. Right. This seems like something for Newsom where he could right. really have potential to, it's very 
I think there are a lot of Democrats who want to hear that message. Right, the Democrats right. in Washington aren't doing anything. Right. And governors in blue states such as Gavin Newsom, they're going to have that platform, particularly if and when this issue does go back to the states. And actually, uh, for a weekend story, uh, some of my colleagues and I talked to a lot of Democratic activists in these states about sort of the inability for Democrats in Washington to pass their agenda. And one of their activists told us that we just want to see them fight. We want to see lawmakers going to the mats to fight for what we believe in in our policies. And I think Newsom is a good example of what activists really want to hear on the ground. Final thought? No, I think this is right. And I've been talking to Democratic strategists who've been talking to focus groups, and this is what they want to see. Yeah. They, they do think that Republicans are going too far, but it's like, what are Democrats offering and what are Democrats fighting for and where do they stand? Great panel. Thanks so much to all of you. Really appreciate it. Breaking news in the hunt for the Alabama corrections officer and the inmate with whom she disappeared. Where their getaway vehicle was just found. Stay with us. In our national lead, breaking news in the manhunt for the accused killer and that Alabama sheriff's deputy who apparently helped him escape from jail. Authorities have found their getaway vehicle in Tennessee, but they did not find the couple. CNN's Ryan Young is in Florence, Alabama, with the latest on the search. Authorities tracking the Alabama fugitive and corrections officer encountering setbacks. U.S. Marshals have located the vehicle that was used as a getaway car but have no new leads on where the pair is now. We're sort of back to square one as far as the vehicle description right now. They found the car before we even knew they were gone. The sheriff says a tow truck driver towed the car from a back road in Williamson County, Tennessee last Friday, about two hours north of where the fugitives were last seen at the detention center. We're assuming where it was abandoned, uh, and it was abandoned so quickly that they probably had mechanical problems with it. They're working on researching to see if any vehicles were reported stolen in that area. Authorities released images rendering showing how their appearance could have changed since the escape. Here's what inmate Casey White may look like with a different facial hair. And here's Officer Vicki White as a brunette with shorter hair. She was blonde when she disappeared last week. Other photos show Casey White's distinctive tattoos, including one of a Confederate flag on his back. He's got a sleeve tattoo on his right arm. Uh, He does have some tattoos on his chest. Uh, He does have a a tattoo in between his shoulder blades. Uh, And something that we learned recently is that he does have two eyeballs tattooed on the back of his head. Vicky and Casey White, who are not related, took off Friday morning. Surveillance video shows the pair leaving the correction facility in a patrol car, under the guise of going to the courthouse for a mental health evaluation. Officials are trying to find out more about the so-called special relationship between the officer and the inmate, which allegedly dates back to 2020 when Casey White was serving time in a state prison and was brought to Lauderdale County for an arraignment on murder charges. We do know and have confirmed that they were in touch via phone Uh, during that two-year period while he was in prison and uh, she was still working here. The escape appears to have been well-coordinated. Vicki White stayed at a hotel the night before their escape near to where her getaway car was parked. But we do know that she was spotted on video at the Quality Inn directly behind Logan's. The sheriff's office still has concerns for her well-being. If you're safe right now, still safe, uh, get out while you can and uh, turn yourself in to local authorities. Yeah, Jake, so many twists and turns in this story. Just think about this. That getaway car was found in the middle of the road. And in fact, they thought maybe it had broken down, but no one was on the inside. Also, they talked about the fact that someone tried to spray paint that orange vehicle green in certain places. Very bad job in that case. And the other thing the sheriff released today is the fact that his former employee was using aliases 
to kind of uh, hide herself around and even purchase that car under an alias before this whole thing kind of got shattered. But so far, they've gotten away. Got to think about it. It's been a week since they've been on the run. Jake? Yeah, that's the remarkable thing about this. They still haven't caught them. Ryan Young, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. Absolutely. And our tech lead, Kraft Heinz, the maker of so many everyday food staples from ketchup to Lunchables, says it has found a way to secure its supply chain problems by teaming with Microsoft to create a digital twin of the company's facilities online, which Kraft Heinz is calling the industrial metaverse. The food giant says this will allow them to problem solve virtually, so its factories will run more efficiently and enable it to get its products more to more grocers and get it to them more quickly. Kraft is joining a growing number of companies looking to connect with customers in the metaverse. Chipotle uh, recently opened a virtual store where customers can roll their own burritos. Coca-Cola created a limited edition soda for players using the game Fortnite. Be sure to tune in this Sunday morning for State of the Union. I'm going to be talking to Democratic Senator from New York, Kirsten Gillibrand, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves. His state, of course, is at the center of that Supreme Court draft opinion. And U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. It's Sunday morning at 9 a.m. and noon. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok. At Jake Tapper, tweet the show at The Lead, CNN. Listen to our podcast. Our coverage continues now with Pamela Brown, who's right next door in a place I like to call The Situation Room. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.